a deacon here at Mercy View, and tonight we'll be reading from Romans 16, verses 1 through 16, and I'm thankful for the name Mary. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sinria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many, and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my, my beloved Epionitus, who was the first convert to, church, to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman, Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphenia and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Perseus, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord. Also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Asyncretus. Philigan, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermes, and, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Lauren. I actually really failed this week as a pastor. Uh, we should have talked about some of those names, but you did great. You know, here's the key, guys. When you come across names um, or words, frankly, in the Bible that you don't know, if you just say them really confidently, you're good. People will think that's how it's supposed to be said. So here's the real challenge. Well, I say it the same way that Lauren said it. That's, that's what uh, will be very interesting here in a moment. Well, hey, my name is Brad. Uh, welcome to Mercy View. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, just to echo uh, uh, Trey's welcome to you. Uh, we're so honored that you're here. If you are visiting with us, I'd love to meet you. And if I can serve you in any way, I'd be honored to do that as well. Um, okay, so in our home on Saturdays, um, we have this thing that we do as a family that uh, is not necessarily uncommon uh, to, to you probably. You do this for sure. But in a, a home like ours where if everybody is there and and for the most part up until this point in our life all 11 of us have been in the same home together um, there's quite a bit that accumulates during the week even though during the week we're doing you know we're tidying and cleaning and trying to keep up with things but Saturday at our place is what I call order day or, or maybe another way to say it is is this is the day that we have set aside to sort of get our house in order so that means this it's time to do the normal sort of tidying that we do the normal cleaning that we do but it's also time to go deeper 
and this is when we get under beds, and this is when we mop, this is when we kind of get the yard in, in order. It's a, it's a next level um, kind of, of cleaning. And here is the reality. Um, if that doesn't happen on a Saturday, which sometimes it doesn't, it sets us up for a really uncomfortable week that's coming up because life continues on, it's busy, and there's not as much time to kind of do those things. But when we are able to, to do those things as a family together, it's amazing what we accomplish. In fact, we always tend to say this to one another, it always looks worse than it actually is. We uh, get uh, all of us together, we start working hard together, and this mess in front of us actually takes less time than we thought to clean. And you guys know the principle, many hands make light work. That's ultimately what ends up happening every Saturday when we are getting the house in order. Everybody has a job, and if everybody does the job that they've been given, everything gets done. Now, you can imagine in a home with younger children, that can also be a challenge. But, but even them, them, as they've been given jobs, are kind of appropriate for their age. As we all lock arms and do this work together, great things get accomplished. Now, is it easy work? No. In fact, I don't really love order day at all. It's, it's something I don't really look forward to. But I know it's something that, that we need to do together, and if we'll do it together, we can accomplish great things uh, together. The church is a lot like order day at the Andrews house. And here's what I mean by that. You and I are connected to one another in a very meaningful way through Christ, right? And in the church, God, as we've seen this in the book of Romans that we've walked through, God has given each of us at least... A gift, if not more than one spiritual gift, in order to serve the body, to, to, to bless one another here in our church. And um, when we come together um, in ministry and on mission together, um, that connection matters. We all play a part. And the purpose that we play is, is different and varied, but in, in some ways it's singular and it's to bring glory to God. And, and so as we come together in the local church with our gifts to serve one another, to ultimately give glory to God, something amazing happens. Something bigger, something greater than any of us could do individually starts to take shape. And not only does it take shape to bless us, it, it gives a, a, the watching world something to look on in and see a, a group of people who love one another but are doing the hard work of ministry, serving one another well and bringing glory to God. It starts to make the, the watching world take notice. We are in the very last chapter of the book of Romans in our series that we started all the way back in the fall of 2021. So we've, I think we've got three more sermons to go, and then we will, uh, we will be done. Now, you just heard Lauren read the, the very first part of Romans 16, and uh, I wonder for you if you're like, what is the significance of what I just listened to? What, what was that? That I just heard. Maybe you've asked that question about other places in the scripture as well. Maybe you've felt this way as you've come across the, the genealogy passages in the Bible. We see those in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. I don't know if you've ever noticed the, the book of Numbers is, is filled with basically a census of people, thus Numbers. 
Um, in the book of Leviticus, another Old Testament book, the, the very first part of that, most of that is filled with all of the, the, the um, directions around the, the way in which the sacrifice system was in, intended to work, the laws that were, were a part of that. All of those things, if you come across those things in the Bible, you might be tempted to say, I don't get it. I'm just going to skip over this. This is the fast forward part of the Bible. But as we often say here at Mercy View, we are a people of the book. And by the book, I mean the Bible. We are Bible people here. Here's, <clears throat> here's why we say that here at Mercy View. This is uh, 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17. It says this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Romans 16 that we just heard, uh, verses 1 through 16, is scripture. It's included in the all of scripture that Paul talks about in 2 Timothy. That means it's profitable for us. If God's word is, is breathed out by him, it's all important. There is no throwaway word or passage in the Bible. So our goal tonight is to make sense of what we just heard. It's to make sense and to really mine out from Romans 16 verses 1 through 16 what gold God intends for us to find. So if you have your Bibles, keep them open to Romans chapter 16. Um, and as you do that, let me just say, these are the things that I want to invite you to see as we do that tonight. Really, it's two things. First, the gospel creates a diverse and interconnected family. The gospel creates a diverse and interconnected spiritual family or a church, you could say. But secondly, the gospel creates a hospitable and generous spiritual family. It creates a hospitable and generous local church. So let's begin right at the very top of Romans 16. Look there with me in verse 1. Paul begins by commending someone. He commends someone by the name of Phoebe. And he calls Phoebe his sister in Christ, right? So this is a uh, not a, a uh, by blood sister, but this is someone because of, of, of his faith in Christ and her faith in Christ. They're a part of a spiritual family. This is his sister in Christ. Now, you'll notice that Paul is using a word that actually he doesn't use the rest of this passage. He is commending to the Roman church his sister in Christ, Phoebe, and, and, and is asking them to welcome her in the Lord, now, why would Paul say, I want to commend someone to you, and as you receive her, I want you to welcome her? Well, it's because of this. Phoebe was not actually a part of the Roman church. She is the one that Paul has given the privilege of delivering this letter to the Roman church. So we can thank Phoebe for this letter, for this book. The whole time we've been in Romans, we've really been looking at a book that Phoebe delivered, hand-delivered, to the Roman church church and it says that she was a part of the Sincrea church which if you're a geography person you'll you'll like to know this is about 6.5 miles east of the city of Corinth which was in Greece 
And, and Paul trusted her so deeply, he said, I want you to deliver this letter to my friends in Rome. And then I want you to notice in verse 2, Paul calls her his patron. Do you see that? And that means this. She gave Paul, and actually it says many others, financial assistance and hospitality in the work of the ministry. Apparently, Phoebe was a person of means. Many believe that she was independently wealthy. And what she chose to use those funds for, in part, was to fund the ministry and the mission of people like Paul. Now, I want to hone in on, on one other word that uh, Paul uses to describe Phoebe here that actually has a fair amount of debate surrounding it. And I want to just take some time to talk about it because it actually is, it becomes a very important thing for us here at Mercy View and one of the ways we think about ministry. And it's the word there in verse 1, servant. Now, in, in the Bible that we typically teach from and, and, and read from here, at Mercy View, the ESV translation, you might notice a little footnote, like a, there's a number next to the word servant in a footnote. And in that footnote, the, the word means that that can be translated in another way. And the other way that the word servant can be translated is the word deaconess or a female deacon. Now, the reason there is a lot of debate around the word servant is because in the original language, it can be translated either way. So there is some question about Paul's intent in, in, in using that word here. So what did Paul mean? Was this just Paul talking generally about the servant-heartedness of, of Phoebe here? Or was he describing someone who was serving in an official capacity in a local church? Now, you're going to hear good, faithful people on both sides of this debate talk about this and make a, a case for their position. And so here at Mercy View, we've wrestled with that question really since our inception and made a decision pretty early on by looking at passages like this on what we think about this idea. And so here's where we have landed. We believe that Phoebe did hold the office of deacon because really this is the only occasion in which the term servant is linked with a particular local church. This church that was close to Corinth in Greece. And that really leads us to a position that we hold here about this. And it is this. It is biblically appropriate for women to serve in the office of deacon provided that that same church is being led by biblically qualified elders. And we not only have that position here at Mercy View, we actually practice that here. We have two female deacons currently. You actually heard one read scripture tonight, Lauren and also Jill Dickerson. And we desire to have more in the future as the Lord provides. We've had female deacons in our past. We believe that this position seems to best allow for the diverse gifting of godly women while still honoring the way in which God desires to see men leading as elders in the local church. And we think Phoebe is an example of that for us. We believe that she was a female deacon. And, and again, this is one of those places that we have looked to say, we should have that here at Mercy View as well. Now, look with me if you would, beginning in verse 3. We just read that again for us. Here's what it says. Look there. Greet Prisia and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, 
who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Now, in um, the very beginning of this verse, you'll notice Paul say, greet Prisa and Aquila. Prisa was sort of a nickname for uh, Priscilla. That's the same person here. But to, to get an idea of who these people are, um, you have to go to Acts 18. And in Acts 18, Paul was in the middle of his secondary missionary journey when he met these two people. And these two people actually happen to be husband and wife. And this husband and wife ends up traveling with Paul uh, to Ephesus. And while they lived in Ephesus, they began to host um, what I would call a church plant. A, a, a little church that was budding up in that particular part of the world. And then notice in verse 5 that Paul sends greetings to those who are at the church that is meeting in their house in Rome. So not only did they do it in Ephesus, they're doing it now in another place. These folks were extremely mission-minded, frontier mission-minded. And at some point, uh, you know, what Paul is saying here or showing us here is that they had moved back to Rome and once again, they've opened their home for a, a church in their home. And one of the things about homes at this time is it, these homes typically could seat 70 to 80 people, all right? So we're not talking necessarily about maybe what some people might think of as a house church. Yes, it was in a house, but it actually was a lot larger than you would think of um, typically. So what do we make of this couple? Well, this was an amazing husband and wife ministry team. And we see that they were dearly loved by Paul. They were willing to take great risks for the gospel, right? Paul says that they stuck their necks out for him. We don't know exactly it's like what Paul meant by that. Like he didn't give us the, the, the examples of that, but apparently they were willing to take a great risk for him or multiple risks. And obviously, we just looked at this, they were extremely hospitable. They were generous with their homes. So here's what I see Paul saying. Everywhere that they went... They were used by God for ministry purposes. That's what they were about. They were always asking God, what now? Like, what are you up to in the city we're living in, in the neighborhood that we're living in? Where do you want us to join you in the work that you are doing? That is the very definition of missional. They were compelled by the love of God to be on mission wherever he sent them. Their goal was Paul's goal to spread the gospel, and to see churches planted. Now look with me, if you would, at the second half of verse 5. Paul asks his Roman friends to greet his first convert, Apaniatus. Now Paul is using a special word here when he says first. This, this convert was not merely the first convert in Asia, like, like the very first one numerically. Paul is actually using a word that's translated first fruits. And Paul is saying this, just like an offering was given to God from the first fruits, expecting that the rest of the harvest would come in. He is saying that when this gentleman was converted, Paul believed that, that, that he was not going to be the last one to be converted. Paul believed that there was going to be more Gentiles in that area that were going to come to Christ. And this young man was just a foretaste of the conversions that were to come. How cool is that, right? How cool is it to think of that, that this, this convert was in the Roman church? 
This is an amazing legacy of Paul's faithfulness. Now look with me, if you would, at verse, a few verses here, actually. In verse 6, Paul mentions Mary, which I agree, Lauren, that's the easiest name of all in in this list tonight. Um, He says uh, about her that that she has worked hard for you, for the Roman church. Then in verse 9, look there, it says, Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. And then down in verse 12, Paul says to greet a couple of folks who are workers and to greet the beloved Persis who has also worked hard in the Lord. It's interesting, there's a theme emerging there, right, of of people who are um, eager to work hard for the Lord. And Paul has noticed their work, he's noticed their diligence, he's noticed their zeal, and he's wanting to greet them or ask the Roman church to greet them for him. You all know this. It's a lot like the, the, the stories that we see or have watched on, on the screen when, a, when, uh, when the battle is going, right? And, and the comrades are together in the trenches and they survive the battle together and they come out on the other side. They, they've they've um, lived to see another day. The bond between those people are deep, maybe even deeper than, than blood. Working hard together for a long time in a common cause with a unified vision has a way of weaving lives together in a very deep affection. So don't miss that. Paul is, is saying that I've seen the work that you've done, the work that I do and the work that you do. It's, it's really one and the same, though some of it hasn't really been together. But because we are under the same banner of Christ, the work that we're doing has caused me to feel connected to you in a very unique way. Paul was stirred in his love for his friends when he thought about how hard they had worked in Christ. And he was deeply connected to them because of that. And I'll just say this by, by way uh, of application too. Um, that describes so many of you here tonight that are a part of our church that would say, I'm a partner here and, and, and I serve here, or I serve there. So many of you are so faithful in the work that you're doing for, uh, for the kingdom. And I want to say I'm so proud of you, and I'm thankful to be partnered with you in this work that we do together. Next, look with me, if you would, beginning in verse 7. Let me read that for us again as well. Here's what it says. Look there. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Now, most people believe that Andronicus and Junia were also probably a husband and wife missionary team, like Aquila and Priscilla. And Paul calls them actually his fellow prisoners. Apparently, this husband and wife team was so renowned for their faith because they had actually suffered in prison like Paul had. So Paul has a a very special connection to them because of that. And when Paul says that they were in Christ before him, that just means that they had become believers in Christ like chronologically before Paul. And they were well known, it says, to the apostles because of their missionary efforts that they engaged in, um, sometimes with Paul himself. And much like Aquila and Priscilla, Andronicus and Junia were first and foremost mission-minded as well. They were asking the, the same kinds of questions 
that uh, any missionary asks, Lord, what are you up to? Let me join you in the work that you are doing. That was what was at the forefront of their minds. They wanted to see the, the gospel of the kingdom expand, and they were consumed by that. Now, let's look at a few more verses together, beginning in verse 8. Paul asks his friends in Rome to greet Ampliatus, his beloved in the Lord, in verse 9. He wants them to greet Stachys, his beloved. In verse 12, he asks them to greet his beloved Persis. And here we start to see another theme emerge in Paul's ministry heart here. Don't miss this. Yes, Paul was the premier missionary of his time. He was a theological heavyweight. He, he was not weak of heart. He endured immense persecution and suffering. And, and, and all of that could create a person who maybe knows a lot about God, but doesn't have an intimate relationship with him, and thus also could just be very stoic and cold towards people as well. But notice that the theology and the suffering and the mission, all of that, uh, did not create someone who was cold. In fact, it's the very opposite of that. Paul shows that amidst all of that, the gospel had so penetrated his heart that he had a tender heart of love, deep love and affection towards his brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen, Paul really loved these people. That's what he means by calling them their, uh, his beloved. And he's trying to express to his friends in the Roman church, remember this is a letter written to them, I love these people and I want my love to be carried from my heart to their hearts by you. Now look with me at verse 10. Paul uses another word to describe another person that he wants his friends to greet. He says to greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. The first time this word is, has popped up in our passage. Many believe that Apelles had endured some, some kind of difficult trial and faced that trial in a commendable way. And thus, what Paul is saying here, the Lord has affirmed or acknowledged him as faithful. Paul is really speaking a, a word of, of encouragement over Apelles here. He's like, he's saying to the, the Roman church, hey, I want you to tell uh, Apelles that the Lord approves of him. Paul goes on to acknowledge a couple of families in this passage. You can see them there in verse 10 and 11. And then in, in verses 14 and 15, there's just a whole slew uh, of names. And many believe that when Paul greets families of these households, he's actually referring to the servants in those households. And as, as far as the names in verses 14 through 15, there is no further information on those saints anywhere else in the scriptures. But don't miss this. Paul was so attentive. This is what a good leader does. This is what a good uh, gospel partner in a church does. He was so attentive that he wanted to commend those who typically are overlooked in the church. Who are overlooked in the work that they do. Maybe because it's behind the scenes or it's just it's unseen. He wanted to commend servants who did tasks to bless a family or a church, but that these people were faithful members of the church. He wanted to say, good job, well done. Now lastly, I want us to look at verse 13. Paul asks the Roman church to greet uh, 
uh, someone by the name of Rufus. And he says about Rufus, this Rufus is chosen in the Lord. And then he also mentions that Rufus's mother is someone who had been a spiritual mother to Paul. Now, many believe that Rufus was one of the sons of Simon of Cyrene. Does that name ring a bell? Simon of Cyrene, you may remember, was the one who carried the cross of Jesus prior to the crucifixion in Mark chapter 15. And if you remember that story, it is there that we find Mark say that Simon of Cyrene was the father of Rufus. And many people think that Mark included that detail because many people believe that Mark wrote the book of Mark for the Roman church. So that would have been something that would have been of particular interest as they read Romans 16. Because here you find Simon, a good Jewish man, visiting Jerusalem for the feast. And suddenly he is pressed into doing the most offensive thing that a Jew could possibly imagine doing. Carrying a cross so that the Romans could put a criminal to death. In fact, what that would have mean for Simon is he would have been ceremonially unclean for the feast itself. But I don't want you to miss what, what's happening here. Apparently, this is amazing to me. In God's providence, Simon was brought to this Lord through brought to the Lord through this experience. Because here in Romans 16, we find that his son Rufus is believing in Christ and is a part of the core group of Christians in Rome. In in Mark 15, it says that Simon brought Rufus and his brother Alexander to the Passover. That's what was happening. That's when he was pulled out of the crowd to carry the cross of Jesus. Apparently, um, also, Rufus's mom was a spiritual mother to Paul. We see that in Romans 16. Somewhere along the way, Rufus's mom ministered significantly to Paul. There is a heritage and a legacy happening here, right? This is why we have to always remember that all of Scripture is God-breathed. We may have to look in some other places to make sense about this, but I want you to think about this. God in his wise providence, begins to plant a core group of believers in Rome by having a man, Simon, bear the tree on which his son would die, on which God's son would die. That is amazing. God is always working in his church to bring about his will. We see that even in the story of Rufus. So, there are the people of Romans 16. But what is Paul's point? Why does he walk through these greetings and condemnations to these people in the Roman church? What's his point? Well, I want to pull a couple of ideas from this passage tonight that I think we find in these verses. First is this. The gospel creates a diverse and interconnected church. Notice how Paul's list of names includes people with Jewish backgrounds, Roman backgrounds, Greek backgrounds. It includes married couples, people that we can assume are are singles, men, women, wealthy people, slaves. We there are individuals that he, he's he's greeting. There are churches meeting in homes that he's greeting. 
There, there are all these titles in this passage, sister, mother, servants, workers, prisoners, converts, kinsmen. So part of the beauty of, of what is here and, and I think is, is what should characterize every church, including Mercy View, is the diversity that is found here in Romans 16. So diversity in age, diversity in, in socioeconomics, it's a diversity in ethnicity, it's a diversity in stations in, in life. And one of the things that I think Paul is showing us here is that this is what gospel ministry should look like. There should be diversity in the right way for the right reasons. But there's a couple other things here too that speak to the idea of both diversity and interconnectedness. And on the issue of diversity, we have to remember this. In the male-dominated culture of that day, it is significant that Paul mentions multiple women in this passage. He mentions five who worked hard in the Lord. In particular, he he entrusted probably the only copy of this letter to a woman. Paul mentions seven women by name in all, plus Rufus's mother. Paul believed that women had an extremely important role to play in serving the Lord. And so do we here at Mercy View. Paul's point here is that women can and should have significant ministries in the local church. And in the cause of, of missions, they should be involved as well. And one of those roles should be the role of deacon that we said earlier, where they can serve in a meaningful way in the life of the church in an official capacity. God desires men and women to be distinct but dependent on one another in the local church. But there's another thing that I want to mention related to the idea of being connected to one another and it's this, one of the greatest joys and benefits of being involved in the life of the church and ministry is the people with whom you are able to connect and minister with. Right, don't miss what Paul is doing here. He's talking about the way in which he is connected to all of these people relationally. Paul could have spent the end of Romans just talking about all the cool things he had done, Right? But instead, what he's doing here is, is showing us that there is something uniquely powerful about participating in the advance of the gospel with brothers and sisters in Christ together. In fact, I would argue that one of the things that we see emerging from our passage today is that ministry is not just about what we do, but also about with whom we do it. Are you with me? Or said another way, spiritual growth is not just about what you know about God and your spiritual maturity. It's also about whose life you are impacting and how you're helping others to grow in what you know about God. So the goal is not just to come to church and only grow personally. The goal is to come and to connect and to grow and to share and to serve together. In other words, spiritual growth and effective ministry take place in the context of relationships. It's just how God set it up. So are you praying for a, a multi-generational, multi-ethnic church here at Mercy View? Are you praying that God would provide in this way in our future? Are you thanking him and praising him for his provision in this way so far in our church? 
Do you value and support the work that women do here at Mercy View? Are you participating in the advance of the gospel in a meaningful way? Like if I I were to ask you that or someone were to ask you that question, how would you answer the way in which you personally are participating in the advance of the gospel in a meaningful way here at our church? Are you pursuing relationships here at Mercy View that are real, that are deep, and, and, and that are sharpening? Are you serving in a meaningful way here at Mercy View? Is your approach to participation here at Mercy View one for just you personally? Or do you see yourself as a part of the whole contributing to this thing that God is doing through us together? The gospel creates a diverse and interconnected church. But the gospel also does another thing. And this is what I see here in our verses tonight in this list of names. The gospel creates a hospitable and generous church as well. Remember that Paul urges the church to extend hospitality to Phoebe. He calls her his sister in Christ. She was family to him. Aquila and Priscilla opened their home to host the gatherings of the church, which they did there in Rome, but also in Ephesus. Most people believe that the, the two groups mentioned in verses 14 and 15 represented maybe other churches meeting in homes. Again, these places could have been where 70 to 80 people were meeting at one time. That is amazing hospitality. But not only were they hospitable, they were generous, especially with their finances. Remember, Paul called Phoebe his patron. Again, this means that that Phoebe, who again was assumed to be independently wealthy, assisted Paul with finances for the work of ministry that he was engaged in. In other words... She stewarded part of her finances for the kingdom. And friends, that should be the same for you and and, and for me. Mercy View should be a place that is marked by financial generosity. It should be all hands on deck. No one should say, I don't need to be a part of that. My part's not significant. We all need to to take our place and to say, we want to fund the mission of God in, in a way that the Lord is, is, is leading us to. So, so what does hospitality look like for you? Is it hosting a gospel community or other kinds of ministry in your home? Is it inviting partners outside of your gospel community into your home for a meal or coffee? Is it serving your literal neighbors that live next to you? And what about generosity? What about stewarding the gifts that God has given us financially? One of the ways that I think we all need to wrestle with that question is to lay over our lives the adjectives that the New Testament uh, gives for the idea of stewardship. And here they are. Is it voluntary? Is it excellent? Is it proportional? Is it sacrificial? Is it strategic? Is it cheerful? And maybe there's just one of those for you that you would say, that's the one that I need to grow in. I, I'm, I'm not giving at all right now, or I give kind of intermittently. Maybe for you, it's the strategic. I need to be more intentional. But maybe you give begrudgingly. It's not really joyful for you. You're, you, you don't experience cheerfulness when, when you give. Ask the Lord to help you with that. Lord, help me to have joy as I give back to you a portion of what you've given me. The gospel creates a hospitable and generous church. I want to end here. There is another thread woven through this passage that we need to see. 
And in a lot of ways, it is the foundation of the affection that is coming from Paul. Eight different times in these verses, Paul refers to his precious friends as being either in Christ or in the Lord. The foundation of Paul's affection for these people is that he knows that he has stood with them on the the precipice of an eternity separated from the grace of God. He knew that where he and they deserve, because of their willful disobedience, the wrath of God, but instead receive the grace of God, they now can say, I've been rescued. We are now spiritual friends that have found safety through the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. That's why Paul says in Christ or in the Lord eight times. I don't know if you've seen the movie The 33 about the rescue of the Chilean miners. But that, that story, um, it, it, it has a spiritual connotation to me. And it's really relevant right here because when you're in the hole with no promise of rescue... The, the separation from the people that you love seems like an eternity. But as you know, there's actually, a, 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 for the most part, a, a good uh, you know, solution to the problem in that movie. People are rescued. People uh, are reunited with their friends and their family. And there's something about that that reminds me of what Paul is talking about here. When he says in Christ and in the Lord, he's saying we're not like people trembling and not sure about our future and what's going on. We're actually out of the hole together. We're hugging. We're happy because we're on solid ground. We're not in that inescapable hole anymore. Everybody in Christ is always safe. And if we want to understand and experience the warmth and preciousness of what Paul is talking about in his relationships in this chapter, we personally have to experience in our own lives what it means to be rescued by the blood of Jesus. Because when we are rescued by the blood of Jesus, we're safe too for an eternity. Yes, the church is diverse. The church should be interconnected. It should be hospitable and generous. But the foundation of those things is always grace. And that grace is what joins us together in Christ. And it serves as the foundation of all that we do. Friends, the good news of the gospel is that God has rescued us from his wrath at the cost of his son. And he has now gathered us together in Christ and we are eternally safe with him. And we can stand together with joy and to look in each other's eyes and say, can you believe this? We're here. We're in Christ. What a gift. What a treasure. Let's get to work. Let's do the things that God has called us to do. That grace, that's what binds us together. That's what binds me together with you if you're a believer here tonight. And it also is what fuels our diversity. It's what fuels our connectedness. It's what fuels our generosity. It's what fuels our hospitality. At the bottom of it all, it really is the wonder and amazement of passing, as John says in his book, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. It is the wonder of passing from death to life that becomes the eternal bond that we have together. It's what ends up informing all that we do in ministry here. 
That's why Paul writes Romans 16, 1 through 16. He wants us to see that if we can get first things first, we are in Christ together. The rest kind of falls into place. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father.